you turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Pretty confident everybody in this room has at some point in their life gotten in trouble. That that might be an interesting conversation. Uh, A more interesting conversation would be what are some of the dumb things you've done to try and get out of trouble or hide your trouble. Uh, I was a student in sixth, sixth or seventh grade, I don't remember, Struma Middle in uh, Baton Rouge, and uh, had a math class that required us, when we got a bad grade, to have it signed by our parents. I don't remember if it was a C, D, or F, something. So I got the bad grade, and did not want my dad to know that I had failed this math test, so I thought that I would just sign it for him, and so I did. But I didn't think I really did that good of a job. My parents to this day have this almost identical, impeccable penmanship, and I don't and didn't. So I just got some white out and went over his name and did it again. I thought this made perfect sense. I tell my teacher my dad did not like his signature, so he wanted to, <laughs> to do it again, do it better. Went to class, turned in the test. To my shock, she called me out in the hall right after class started. Didn't ask any questions like she knew I had done something wrong. Just told me to go and have my dad sign it for real. And so I did. And I don't remember what my dad said. I don't even remember if he remembers it. I need to ask him one day. But my foolishness uh, was directly related to this lack of understanding about my father. This lack of truly understanding who he was and how he would treat me in my sins. And we as Christians can suffer the same fate with our Heavenly Father. In our sins, do we really understand who He is? And then do we act accordingly? Or do we do all of these silly, foolish things to try and do away with the consequences or cover it up or whatever else we think is wise but foolish? We're going to see this throughout Daniel chapter 9. We have been walking through Daniel this entire summer. We'll finish up next Sunday. And we've seen example after example of what it's like to live as God's people when the circumstances surrounding us aren't always conducive to us living out our faith easily or even openly. How do we remain faithful? How do we remain faithful in persecution? How do we remain faithful in suffering our temptation to sin? How do we remain faithful to the Lord when it seems like no one else around us is faithful? Or cares about what we care about. And part of remaining faithful in circumstances like that is understanding who you are, understanding who has you, whose you are, and how He is faithful and strong even when we are not. How He is committed to us even when we're not committed to Him. How He loves us even when our love is imperfect. And He's sovereignly working all things out for His ultimate purpose for His people. For redemption. Full restoration. So let's see these themes run through Daniel chapter 9 today, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hashuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Father, we are grateful for your word. Instruct us. Teach us today. Illuminate the scriptures. We want to see. We want to understand. We want to 
to see you for who you are. We don't want to just hear a sermon. We want to hear the voice of God. So come, Spirit of God, and teach us through your word so we may have faith, so we may repent, so we may love you more. Father, do this work for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 is the second of, or the third rather, of the four apocalyptic visions given to Daniel that make up the last six chapters of the book of Daniel. These four visions were given to Daniel throughout the years of the events of Daniels 1 through 6. So if you were to look at the chronology of Daniel, it might look something like that. <laughs> Won't be the first time. Um, Daniel chapters 1 through 4 essentially happened between 605 and around 553 B.C. The visions of Daniel 7 and 8 come around 553 to 551. There's some, probably some fudging there in those years. Then you have the events of Daniel 5 and 539 B.C. That was the taking over of the Babylonian Empire by the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the vision that we're looking at today, the same year, the first year of Darius. And then you have the events of Daniel 6, the lion's den, and then not long after that, the visions that we'll look at next week, Daniel 10 through 12. The time clue is given to us in the first verse where Darius takes over the, with the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel tells us he's been reading the prophet Jeremiah where the, the Lord has spoken, the word of the Lord has spoken, which again is this internal confirmation that the scriptures are the word of the Lord. And he reads in Jeremiah that the exile was going to last 70 years. Now, he could have been reading Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of, the Babylon, of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Or maybe he was reading Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Daniel reads this and he starts doing the math. He's like, I've been in Babylon since 605 B.C. It's now 539 B.C. It's 66 years. It's close. We're, We're about to go home. Now, it's possible that the 70 years are up. There's some debate over the dating of the 70 years of exile because some date it to, to begin in 597 B.C. when the, the second siege of Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem and the second group of exiles were taken away. Or it could be 586 B.C. when Jerusalem and the temple were fully destroyed and the 70 years ended when the temple was rebuilt around 520 to 516 B.C. Either way, it's close enough for Daniel to think it's almost over. This time has come to an end. And his response? Celebration, right? Start packing our bags. Load up the camels. Let's get this thing going. Let's go back home and, and resettle the land. Maybe a little surprising, his response, beginning in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Along with passages like Psalm 51, Psalm 32, this is one of the great prayers of confession in the scriptures. And it basically follows our our typical pattern of prayer that we talk about, Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, except it leaves out the part of thanksgiving. So let's walk through it as such. He begins with adoration. Uh, Actually, he begins with taking on these physical signs of humility and repentance, sackcloth and ashes. So take off your comfortable clothes and put on something rough and uncomfortable like sackcloth. Smear ashes on your skin to show your sorrow, humility, anguish, and brokenness. It was a way to outwardly show this inward reality of your heart. Like we have all these postures of prayer. We bow our head and close our eyes. Or sometimes we kneel. Or sometimes we we lift our hands. Or sometimes we may lay prostrate on the ground. All uh, reflections physically of where our heart is. Sometimes we weep because we're brokenhearted. But probably no one in here has torn their clothes, put on sackcloth in ashes. Why would Daniel have been so broken? We'll get to that. But first, adoration. He recognizes who he is praying to, starting in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he's done. Verse 15, and now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself. Like an essential part of an accurate confession of your sins is recognizing who you have sinned against and why your actions can be counted as sin. 
And so you see these qualities of God. He's great. He's awesome. Covenant-keeping, steadfast love, righteousness, merciful, forgiving, righteous, mighty, made a name for himself. A God who has been nothing but good, loving, and kind, fatherly, merciful. He chose Israel from among all nations, a people that he set his covenantal love on, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but because he chose them. That's why they were deserving of his covenantal love. Deliver them with his mighty hand out of Egypt. Call them to Mount Sinai. Gave them this law, this covenant. This is how we're going to exist in relationship as a God and my people in a land that I'm about to give you. And in that land, I'm going to provide everything that you need. And while we go to that land, even in your discipline, in wilderness, in rebellion, I still will provide everything you need. And I will fight for you and I will protect you and I will love you and I will defend you and I will be a father to the fatherless and I will take care of the widows and orphans through the laws that I've set up in this society. I will care for the strong and I will care for the weak. I will be as a father to you. I will be as a husband to you. I will be your king. You will be my people. You see this specifically in verse 4 that he keeps covenant and steadfast love with them. You see this in the original language of the passage. You probably didn't bring your copy of the Hebrew Scriptures with you this morning, but if you did, or in your English translation, you see sometimes the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps. Whenever you see the word in the Old Testament, Lord, in all caps, know that behind that is the English, uh, the Hebrew, rather, covenantal name of God. Yahweh is how we say it. This only occurs in this chapter of Daniel. This covenantal name of God is nowhere else in the book of Daniel. This goes back to Exodus 3 when Moses is standing before the burning bush. God is calling Moses to go deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses asks God, who's speaking to him from a bush that is on fire but not consumed, they're going to ask him what your name is. What do I tell them? All these Egyptians, gods have names. What's your name? I can't just tell them I came from a burning bush that was talking to me. And the Lord says in Exodus 3.14... Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in the Hebrew there, it's just four consonants, what we would call Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton. No vowels in the original Hebrew language. Those would be added later. They think with the vowel it would pronounce something like Yahweh, but we really don't know for sure. A name so revered by the Jews that they wouldn't speak it. Now, whenever you see in your English translations the word Lord with just a capital L and all lowercase O-R-D, behind that is the Hebrew word Elohim. And that's kind of a generic name for God, that, that, that He's the God over all nations. But this name Yahweh is reserved for His relationship with His people, His covenantal name. I am Lord and God over all nations, but I am Yahweh to Israel. They alone have this relationship with me. And that name is all throughout chapter 9 of Daniel. Daniel is praying to and he's calling upon the God of the Jewish people who is great, mighty, righteous, who's in this committed, covenantal, loving relationship with this particular people. You can also read a passage like Ezekiel 16, also a prophet who is in exile with the Jews, speaking to God's people from God. And you get more insight into how the Lord loved his covenant people. Exodus 16, verse 8, uh, rather, Ezekiel 16, verse 8 through 14. When I passed by you again and I saw you, talking about 
the Lord looking at the nation, the people of Israel. Behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. This is how he felt about his people. This is bridal language. And you should read the rest of the chapter on your own because it's not only how the Lord called and created this nation and made them beautiful, bestowed all these blessings on them, all driven by His love, His covenant with them, but how they rebelled against Him. You see how the Lord felt about them in the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea, a prophet of God, called to marry this prostitute, Gomer. And though she keeps leaving him to go back into prostitution, here comes Hosea to get her time and time again. You're mine. Even though you're unfaithful, I'm faithful to you. You're mine. This is how God feels about those whom he has covenanted with. You ever stop to think about how incredibly good and gracious God has been in your life? We, the people of the new covenant, the church, how bountiful His blessings and provision are, how strong and mighty His protection is, how He is often working and preserving and saving and doing things in our life we, we mostly have no idea about. Sustaining our lives with every heartbeat, beat, breath, brain cell, vision, hearing, digestive system, endocrine system, circulatory, respiratory systems, working day after day, mostly on their own. A heart that keeps beating because some of the mysterious electrical impulse that, that, that we get within the first few weeks of conception that just never goes away until our life is over. And we're doing nothing to make that just keep happening time and time again. And He's causing our heart to beat time and time again, day after day, year after year. And the Lord does this for everyone, not just His people. And yet, we as His people get even more than that. Romans 8, 32. He, did not, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also give with Him graciously give us all things? What consists of the all things? It'll be a great discussion later on. To think on that, meditate on that. What are the all things that He gives us? Provision of our Father for this physical life. Bread, clothes, shelter, family. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Literally everything you have, God owns and He's given it to you. But I earned it. I worked for it. 
You think you worked hard for it and you've earned it all, but every single ability to earn every single degree and academic achievement and every single skill to accomplish every single job or success, where did it originally come from? It was all gifted to us by the Lord, blessed us by the Lord, and now used by the Lord. And that's not even the spiritual blessings. You and I are co-heirs with Christ. And what we inherit, what we get as spiritual blessings, isn't even the cream of the cream. Because the best thing that He gives us is Himself. Not something that can just be listed or used. He gives Himself. That's the best thing that He gives us. All things He will not spare us if He's already given us His Son. And I exhort you as a church, I exhort us as a church to spend time daily, weekly, meditating and reflecting on these things. And all of this given to us, not when we achieve some level of spiritual maturity or some kind of religious perfection or been righteous long enough. This is all ours from the first second we enter into a covenantal relationship with Jesus. From the first second of our new birth. We get the whole truckload. This is not Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts where we got to jump through all these hoops to get medals and ribbons and we advance in the kingdom of God. He dumps the whole truckload of Himself and everything on us from the first second of our life with Him. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't measure out His love. He doesn't give some of His love to us later on when we've proven ourselves. He just dumps it all on us. We get it all. This is who Daniel is coming to. And it's never taken away from us. Never to be lessened. We're never to be kicked out of the family. We're never to be scorned, shamed, ridiculed, condemned. Ever. There's no power on earth that can take it away. There's no power of Satan that can strip it from us. There's no death, sickness, nothing, and no one who's ever been created can remove us from this relationship with our God. This is who Daniel's coming to. This is who we come to. This amazing, covenant-keeping, loving, steadfast, loving God. And when you grasp the reality of who He is... This is what makes sin so awful. This is what makes sin so awful. This is why Daniel is in sackcloth and ashes and broken. Verse 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. Verse 7. Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8. We have rebelled. Verse 9. We have sinned against you. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Maybe the most interesting aspect of this is how much Daniel was identifying with the people of God. Daniel was a kid. When Israel was taken into captivity, 
He hadn't been a part of the generations of generations who had been piling up these sins that eventually led to this discipline. In fact, all through the book of Daniel, you see him as nothing but the faithful, righteous, outstanding servant of God doing everything right up into his 80s in a foreign land. Daniel is one of the few characters in Scripture that is a major character in Scripture that we have no recorded sin. He's blameless. There's no flaw of Daniel written in the book of Daniel. We know he's a sinner, but we does not record. You can literally say, be like Daniel. He did everything right. And yet his language is corporate. We have sinned. I'm with them. I'm just as guilty as they are. Like Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, identifying with those who were born dead in their sins and trespasses, among whom we, we also once lived carrying out the sinful desires of our flesh. Our 1 Timothy 1, 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. God can't save me. I've sinned too much. No, that's exactly who God saves. But I will fail. I won't do well. I will fail time and time again. Good. That's exactly who God saves. Sinners. You qualify. I qualify. And Daniel understood he was not innocent. None of this was surprising. This is all foretold as as Daniel alluded to there with the, the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses, the oaths that had been broken foretold by the Lord when he entered in this covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. The book of Deuteronomy is basically the spelling out of this covenant. It's in the pattern, the language of an ancient covenantal treaty between two parties. The entire book of Deuteronomy. So there's a way that it's written and you eventually get to a part of this treaty where you're spelling out. If we both keep up our end of the agreement, this is the good that will happen. If one of us breaks the covenant, this is the bad that will happen. So you get into this in Deuteronomy 8. The Lord promising blessing if they would obey Him and do life His way. And the Lord promising discipline if they disobey and break covenant with Him through sinful rebellion. Deuteronomy 28, 58, 59. If you are not careful to do all the works, words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear His glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Like afflictions aren't bad enough. They've got to be extraordinary. Verse 64, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. This was written about 800 years before they go into Babylon. They knew this was the terms of the relationship. There would be practices and times and the years of the the Jewish religious calendar where this would be read to all the people. They heard this year after year. The prophets came year after year to remind them, this is what you agreed to. This is the people that you promised to be. This is who God has made you to be. Repent. Turn away from your wicked ways and return to your covenant-keeping God. And they continue their downward spiral into exile. In exile, not because Babylon was great, but because their sins were great. God used Babylon, a wicked pagan nation, to discipline those whom he loved. And this is what makes sin so awful. It's not just the actions that we commit that are wrong, but it's ultimately who we commit them against. Who we ultimately offend. Our sins are not awful because we feel bad. Our sins are not awful because we got caught or exposed or we're humiliated or shamed. 
Our sins are awful because who we have sinned against, who we have offended. David got this in Psalm 51 when he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51, written after his sin with Bathsheba, the woman bathing on the roof whom he called to his castle, his, his palace, and he, she succumbed to his desires to commit adultery. He has her husband Uriah killed, takes her as his bride. The baby is born and the baby dies because of his sin. And David says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. What about Uriah, David? What about Bathsheba? What about the baby that died innocently because of your sin? What about the nation of Israel over whom you're supposed to be an example of righteousness? All important, all also offended, but ultimately the greatest offense is against God. We can cover our sins and try and hide our sins. We can lie to our accountability groups like DNA or our missional communities. We can show up in this building on Sundays and put on a pretty face and pretend we are good and okay. We can go about our lives and in secret be destroying ourselves with sin. And we think we're getting away with it because we've gotten so used to our sin. We no longer feel remorse or we've learned to do a really good job of hiding it, and we don't seem to be suffering any negative consequences, and so I must be okay. Yet the stench of our sin we play around with makes its way to the nostrils of our holy, loving, covenant-keeping God, and He is offended. He is offended by this because He is holy and good and righteous, and He hates sin, all sin, Every sin. All of them. There's no exceptions. And Daniel got this. And he comes before this good, kind, righteous God with remorse and repentance. Because he realizes where the nation has been. He realizes how their sins have offended the Lord. What hope did they have? What hope do we have? Don't don't fall back on grace and use grace as like this get out of jail free card that somehow lessens the offense of our sins. Our sins are still offensive. All of them. There's never any place where a healthy Christian shrugged their shoulders at sin. Ever. Ever. It's never like, well, it doesn't really matter. God still loves me. It matters. It's still not okay, even though they've all been covered by the blood of Christ. What hope do we have? Look where Daniel turned in his prayer. It turns from adoration to confession and now petition or supplication. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who, were, who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's hope was rooted again in the character and nature of God whom they had offended. Because God is righteous and good and holy, yes, this is what makes sin so awful, but yes, it's also what makes our forgiveness and restoration so possible. Because the same God that we have offended greatly with our sins is the same God who has alone made provision for us to be cleansed, restored, and made new. Like, think about it. When, you, when you've really blown it, how hard is it for you to come clean? With our parents, we like our parents in the garden. We just want to hide. We want to cover ourselves with fig leaves. If no one knows that I'm really okay, and we're amazingly good at hiding our sin. Like if every sinful thought, just the sinful thoughts that have popped in our minds, that we've dwelt upon and given into since we came here this morning, if those were projected on the wall, how awful would we feel? No one knows. I'm okay. Yet the one to whom it is impossible to hide from, the one who knows every single sin that we've committed or thought, every wrong motivation, every fiber of our wretched being, the same one who we have offended the most is the same one and the only one that we can go to for forgiveness. And he abundantly, lovingly, overwhelmingly provides it to his children, to the repentant. This is amazing. He doesn't just long to judge us and pour out his wrath on us. He longs for us to come to him to be cleansed. So we don't have to stay in that place of despair because of the hideousness of our sin. We have someone to run to. And he loves to cleanse us. And make us new. This is rooted in this covenantal relationship God has with his people. You see hints of this in Daniel's prayer. From places like 1 Kings 8. Solomon's prayer of dedication when the temple was built. Where he said, if they sin against you. For there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them. Talking about God angry with his people. And give them to an enemy. Which has happened. So that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent. And plead with you in the land of their captors saying we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land. Which you gave to their fathers the city that you have chosen the house that I built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Because God is in this relationship with his people, yes, he would discipline them for their sin. But yes, he would restore and forgive his people as they repent and trust in him again. Like, it, it, we're never going to get to a point where God acts differently toward us 
This is who he's always been with his people. This is how he will always be with his people until the eternal state is set up and there is no more sin. God's never going to get to a point where, no, you know, this sin, that sin was really bad. You're going, to have to, you're going to do better than that. I need some acts of righteousness to cover up that. It's never going to be like that. It's just turning away from sin. That's not who I want to be. I want to be this person that I'm created new in Christ Jesus to be. Cleanse me. Forgive me afresh and anew. And here he comes, overwhelming us with his forgiveness and cleansing and love and grace and compassion and mercy because that is who he is and we are his people. It's what makes him look great. You see a similar idea in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. He never changes. He always does what is good and right. And because of that, when we confess and repent, he is always going to show us mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. God never has a bad day. He never has an off day. He's always the same. As you see in this passage in Daniel 9, when we call upon the Lord and we ask the Lord to act in this way consistent with his character, to make his name great. Like what kind of God continues to show this kind of mercy and compassion to his sinful wandering people? What kind of God continues to be committed to love and and, and committed to his sinful wandering people? Our God does. The most high God, the one true God. And so how does God... Respond to Daniel's request. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. As soon as you started praying, Daniel, I, Gabriel, the angel, messenger of the Lord, took off. One of the only two named angels in the Bible. A word was given by the Lord to bring to you. But, but know this. The first thing I want you to know. You are greatly loved. Before we get to work on this vision... Again, see the context for this answer. My loving relationship with my people, i.e. you, Daniel. I can imagine if every time we prayed and confessed our sin and repented of our wrongdoing, that was the first message the Lord would send to us. You are greatly loved. Yeah, we have work to do, but, but I want you to know this. Your sins have not changed how I feel about you. O son, O daughter. You are greatly loved. That never changes. We never mess that up as his people. You are greatly loved, church. You are greatly loved, Christian, by the God who created the universe. You are greatly loved, son and daughter of the Most High God. No matter what you've done, you're greatly loved. Your sins don't change that. Do you know this? You're greatly loved in this forever, never-breaking, unstoppable love of your Father in heaven. You, you can't mess this up. You are greatly loved. 
by the God who has every right to destroy us because of our sin, yet redeems us because of His righteousness and loves us forever. And now we get to this vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Welcome to Biblical Interpretation Quagmire. Without a doubt, one of the most difficult passages in all of the scriptures to make sense of, one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. In the year 400 AD, the church father Jerome basically said this about this passage, I have no idea what this passage means. Here are nine conflicting interpretations. You read them and you pick. (laughs) I read one theory this past week that was actually put forward by a theoretical physicist. I wish I was kidding. I'll, I'll spare you that one. But I can say with full confidence after much prayer and study this week, I've unlocked the key to grasping this passage. And for the first time in church history, it will make sense. I have a chart I'm going to put up. (laughs) Not really. Anyone who speaks with that kind of confidence about this passage, don't dismiss their view, but be very skeptical of their view. There's no way to be certain about all the details of this vision. There's a definite truth that there's a strong connection between your view of this passage and your view of the end times, eschatology, how things are going to play out. And so some take a very literal approach to these numbers, despite the fact that numbers in uh, apocalyptic writing are often figurative. Systems and charts have been created. You can Google them and look them up from this passage that will impressively give you a date from these events to the very day Jesus was crucified. Some will see these numbers as totally symbolic and they will have the events have little to do with actual events in history as much as the greater spiritual realities behind them. And then you'll have a group of people kind of in between those two options. So what should we do with this? What can we know for sure and not leave here more confused? That's like my main goal. In verse 24, you basically have six events that are going to happen. To finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. And these events are going to happen over 70 weeks. A lot of the debate centers around how to define those 70 weeks. No one believes that we're talking about 70 literal weeks. As in, over the next 490 days, little over a year, all six of these events took place. 
The um, everlasting, bring in everlasting righteousness, we're still waiting on that. That's the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God. Um, according to most people. There's still some people who think that means something else. These 70 weeks are actually 70 weeks of years. And so you're talking about 70 times 7 years or 490 years. Almost all the debate centers around how to interpret those 490 years. If you want to be highly literalistic, you're going to have to start looking at history and finding events that match up to those dates. And there's a camp that's done that, except now we're in this last week of Daniel. This 69th week has been completed with the crucifixion of Christ. And we're in this, this in, undetermined, indeterminate amount of time waiting for the final week to take place. The final seven years to take place. So they're very literalistic with the years until they can't be literalistic with the years. And so now it's just undetermined. We're just waiting for the church to be raptured and these final seven years to come in and then everything will end. And, and now we're in this parenthesis or the church age. Other passages in the scriptures, though, help us to see these numbers as more figurative or symbolic. For instance, 2 Chronicles 36, 19-21 speak a prophecy about this time of exile and they use language about the 70 years of exile as a Sabbath rest for the land. And they burned the house of the Lord and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of his palaces with fire and destroyed all his precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The Jews were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year and then every 50th year in the year of Jubilee. So God is allowing the land to rest for these 70 years. And no matter how you date the exile, 605, 597, 586, it's never exactly 70 years. It was never literally 70 years. It's about 70 years. Also, in the New Testament, when Peter asks the Lord how often he has to forgive someone who sinned against him, Jesus says, 70 times 7. No one thinks Jesus literally meant you only forgive someone 490 times. 491, done with you. The number seven in the scripture speaks of completion. God created everything complete in seven days. The number 10 in the scripture speaks of fullness. The law was given to the people in 10 commands. Therefore, 70 times 10 or 70 is not about being literally 70 years or literally 70 weeks of years, but a full, complete time for the Lord to accomplish his purposes. All six things mentioned in verse 24 that are to happen are to happen over this full, complete period of time. The time is split into three divisions with certain events that will occur during the first seven weeks of years or 49 years. Certain events that will occur in the next 62 weeks of years or 434 years. And then the final events will occur in the final week or the final seven years. And I could stand up here and give you all the theories about all the events and time frames of these years. If you really want that, text me. I'll email you something this week and you can knock yourself out. This passage is definitely about Christ and his crucifixion. Sin atoned for, the anointed one, Messiah cut off. It's definitely about Jesus dying for our sins. Definitely about the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of Christ to bring in this everlasting righteousness. That's the end result of where this is headed. 
It's definitely about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its ultimate destruction. That's clear. So you probably have some Antiochus Epiphanes showing up in here and Titus, the Roman general, who was surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Was the entire vision fulfilled by 70 A.D.? Was it fulfilled in 165 B.C.? Are we waiting for more to be done in this vision? How literal is it? How symbolic? Those are much harder questions. Part of what makes biblical prophecy difficult is this idea of mountain peaks and mountain ranges. So when you're on this side giving a prophecy into the future, you see these items that are like mountain peaks. To you, they appear to be one right after the other. But if you walk from mountain to mountain and mountain peak to mountain peak, you know there's a vast span of time between these events. This is why the Jews missed Christ the Messiah as a suffering servant. They didn't see this at all. They thought when Messiah came, it's going to be God's kingdom coming to this earth. That's happening one day. But there's this indeterminate amount of time between the first time he came as a suffering servant and the second return of Christ as conquering king. So let's just kind of look at the big picture. Daniel realizes the Jews are close to the end of their 70 years of exile put into exile by their sins under the discipline of their covenantal loving God. Daniel begins to prepare himself for the end of this exile through repentance and confession of sin and asks God to restore the people for the sake and glory of his name. And the Lord responds with this vision of ultimate restoration, but more trouble to come. So just because you are getting out of these 70 years of exile and I'm going to send you back to your land doesn't mean trouble is not over. It doesn't mean you're fully restored. It doesn't mean your sins are fully, completely atoned for. There's still work to be done done to accomplish all of that. More time is needed. The Jews will return and rebuild, but more trouble will come. But so will a Messiah who will be cut off, but who will also eventually usher in the everlasting righteousness. And so their, their message to them in, in 539 B.C. is kind of like our message to us about the end times today in 2017. When we're trying to discern the end times, we, we know we can't. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. We're never going to figure it out. But it's coming. It's going to come exactly when the Lord determines it will come. And for his people, our job is to remain faithful, to be ready, to trust our God because he is working through all the chaos to accomplish his ultimate purpose for his people and all of creation. So don't despair. Don't run and hide in your sins. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't live in fear. Don't freak out when we have a total solar eclipse in the United States and then two hurricanes coming right after it. Oh, this could be the end. Maybe it is. Hallelujah. Let's have it. Maybe it's not. We don't know. Be ready. Be faithful. Don't despair. Don't be afraid. Repent. Believe again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal for everything that we face. Trust Him, follow Him, run to Him, seek Him for cleansing and wholeness in life. And when you can't or you fail to do that perfectly, know this. As His people, His love is set on you. He is coming for you to discipline you and bring you back. He's going to remain faithful even when we don't. He is going to keep His promises to His people even when we don't. And so our response is to repent and believe. 
How do you know that you're one of his? How do you know that you're one of his who can claim this covenantal relationship, this security, this hope, this everlasting promise of his love and his discipline and his sanctification and his purposes working out in your life? How do you know? Because you respond in repentance and belief. That's how you know. Do you respond to repentance and belief in Jesus? See who he is and see the offense of your sin, but run to him. He is the only one who can remedy your sin problem. There's no one else to run to who can help, and you cannot hide. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot cover it up. It's all seen by him. So don't hide in darkness, but come into the light and be made new. Because the only one who can truly condemn you has given himself to save you and to set you free. And maybe for you that today would be the first time that really happens. The first time you've truly repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. And today is the day of your salvation. And right now the Spirit of God is making you alive in Christ Jesus. Because you're believing and trusting in Jesus for the first time. Please. Tell us, tell who you came with. We want to instruct you in what it means to declare that to the world through baptism. And make that known and help disciple you as as a follower of Jesus. But for most of us, this is covenant renewal time. To be again reminded of the goodness of our God to love us and save us and redeem us and wash us even though we're sinful. And we eat of this meal each week as a covenant renewal meal. Yes, once again, to see the beauty of our Savior who would come and be broken and bleed for our great wickedness. And then we look up and we look ahead to where all of this is headed. One day, the everlasting righteous kingdom of our King will come down. And we will dwell with Him and His people forever. And after 10 million, million, million years of incredible joy, we will only be getting started. So I invite you to respond in repentance and faith in sharing of this meal and giving of your tithes and offerings and singing songs of worship and adoration to Jesus and loving your brother and sister in Christ in covenanting together to leave this place and go be the people of God in this city to let them see our King, to see His love for them, the wicked and sinful, as He has loved us. Father, we are so overwhelmed that You would accomplish these things we know you can you're amazing and powerful but that you would that you would and even though we are sinful and only deserving of your wrath and condemnation you overwhelm us with your grace love and mercy continually time and time again and so let us again drink deeply from the 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 everlasting well that is jesus christ And I pray for anyone who is here who has never confessed Christ as Savior or enjoyed this relationship with Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.